Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. I want to just describe a scene for you. There we were, my wife Melanie and I, surrounded by forests and bugs, and the deer were deering, and the birds were birding, and the loons were looning. Fish were jumping. We were in the wilderness, the wilds of Charlotte County. It was awesome. And there we were, just us alone in the wilderness and the elements in a perfectly air-conditioned camping dome (laughs) with a king-size bed and Wi-Fi and a fridge and running water. See, some of you are hostile and caught-type people. My wife is more of a hotel and California king type person. So that was our camping. Glamping, they call it. But we felt it would be appropriate, since we were in the woods and all, to at least watch TV that was kind of wildernessy. So we watched Alone. Anybody ever watch the show Alone? We binge watched season six of Alone. It's a show on History Channel. Just show of hands. Who knows what I'm talking about? The show alone. About half of you. It's a show on History Channel where 10 contestants will be dropped off into like the most remote, inhospitable places on planet Earth, and they have to just survive on willpower and wit and ingenuity and survival skills. They come with just a few items, and they have to like make a shelter and acquire food. It's quite amazing what they do. And the object of the game, there's money on the line. The person who lasts the longest in the wilderness gets the money. Nobody, there's no consolation prize or anything. It's a fascinating show, not just because you get to watch like the bushcraft and see these guys and gals who are incredible just in the wild making, making life happen. It's quite the skill to behold. But what happens though is quite fascinating. As time goes on and resources begin to dwindle, you start to see just the, the wild side of our humanity come out. And these guys, like some of them have nervous and mental breakdowns. Some of them can't take the isolation. Some of them begin to starve. It's quite fascinating. Anybody who's watched it, the things that people will eat when they get hungry enough. I'm telling you, like at first it's, it's all good. They usually drop them off in September when there's plenty of resource. There's fish around and you, they're hunting wild game and foraging berries. And then, man, like November comes and things get a little more scarce and they start to eat like tree bark and moss and parts of old animals that you never thought any human being would ever consider eating they're eating. It's, it's incredible to see. And it's just quite the spectacle when you see, like, most of us aren't faced with real hunger like that. But when you're faced with hunger, your appetites have such a driving power that they will push you to do things you never even imagined possible. I read a book this past summer called The Wager. Anybody ever heard this, this story of The Wager? Literally no one in the whole room, maybe online. Uh, This is a fascinating book about uh, an expedition, a British naval expedition in 1740. There's five British ships, one of them called the Wager. This is an exact replica of the Wager. No, it's not. It's just a picture. But one of them called the Wager, and they set out to try to find a Spanish galleon filled with treasure. Sounds like stuff in movies. Well, this is a true story. And they set out, and once they got from Great Britain all the way down underneath South America on Cape Horn. Some of you who are sailors know like that is one of the most gnarly places on planet Earth to sail. And of course, they shipwrecked. They started out with 300 sailors, and by the time they were on the island in Patagonia, there was just a hundred of them left. And they had to survive for months and months and months on literally just next to nothing. And the story degrades and devolves into a story of mutiny, lying, backstabbing, murder, and cannibalism. It's really happened, and it's crazy to see, again, the power of hunger. It will drive you to do things. It's incredible what we will do if we get hungry enough, isn't it? I talked to Pastor Adam this past week. He runs our Celebrate Recovery Ministry. He's also our West Campus pastor, and he was telling me about the, the just beautiful time of testimony they had here. One of the things we do at CR is just give testimony to the way that Jesus has kind of set us free from our addictions and our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups 
And there was a testimony this past week, and again, just recounting just the extremes that people will go to when they're bound in addiction. Anybody seen that or experienced that in their own home or your own life? Like the things you'll do when you are wanting a fix. And Pastor Adam was just really moved on, on Wednesday morning telling me, yeah, you know, it's been a while since I was an addict and you forget the way that you'll cut corners and you'll backstab and you'll steal and you'll destroy things just to get that fix and feed that need. And again, I just want to say the statement. I've said it a few times. It's incredible what you'll do if you get hungry enough. Hunger is a powerful thing. And now some of you may have not been an addict before, or maybe you weren't on a, con a contestant on a loan, but I bet you if you zoomed out on your life for a minute and you started to look at the reason why you do what you do, it would be connected back to a low-grade, deep desire inside of you that is actually pushing you around, causing you to operate, live, act, and move the way you are. You might not have thought about it this, like, like this before. You may not have realized it, but hunger and your appetites are the ultimate driving force in your day-to-day -day life. It's ultimately driving behind everything that you do. And a lot of the time we don't realize what's going on. But here's the thing. You can actually be controlled by your appetites. It can have a power over you and it can dictate what you do in your life. And here's the hard part. If we don't get our appetites in the right order, it can lead us to real destructive places. This is what happens with addiction. This is what happens. Maybe you're not an addict, but maybe you're addicted to validation. And the reason that you obsess on social media is, in, is a hunger inside the matter. Maybe you're a person who's anxious and you're constantly needing to control situations. It's because you're hungering for peace and hope. Hunger is a very powerful thing. It's amazing what we'll do when we get hungry. Now, why am I talking about hunger? Because it's connected to the scripture I want to look at today in Matthew's gospel. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 14, and we're going to look at a very famous passage of scripture, a very famous miracle that Jesus does where he feeds a great multitude. Now, to read the text in Matthew 14, I am going to go to Brent Ingersoll on location in Israel, I'm going to throw it to him in the field. Why do, they always why do they always like touch their ear? They're like, thanks, Brent. They always do that pause too. We're going to throw it to Brent in the field. I was actually in Israel where this happened. And so I'm reading the scripture in the historic place where the feeding of the 5,000 happened. You're going to see a couple shots of a field and a, a mountainside. You're going to see a shot of the Sea of Galilee. You start to get in your mind this actual event that happened. So let's cue up the video. I'm going to throw it to Brent in the field, and we're going to read the scripture, Matthew chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. So we're standing in the place where it's historically said that Jesus fed the 5,000. So it's incredible to think that all the towns surrounding this area would have emptied out to hear Jesus preach and then we find out in the Gospels that people were hungry, and so he fed them. The Gospel of Matthew records it this way. It says in Matthew 14 that after Jesus had heard what had happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. So send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up the 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, there are a million directions we can go talking about such an incredible event. But today, I just want to be quick. I want to give you two insights from this story and one invitation. Two insights and one invitation. Now, are you, are you with me this morning? The 9 o'clock was a little, little lag, like sluggish. Make me feel like I want to come back preaching. Would you help a brother out today? 
All right, so we're going, to do a little, we're going to do a little psychology, though, before we get into the Scripture. But I want to give you two insights and one invitation. Now, this is one of the most famous miracles. You might not have even grown up in church or even be familiar with the Bible, but you probably have heard of Jesus taking five loaves of bread and two fish and feeding the thousands. Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men plus women and children. So there's probably 15,000 people there in that exact place that I was standing. Now, they built up monasteries, and they built up uh, churches around it, and so it, it's, been, it's been built up around the spot, but you can see that kind of rural space that Jesus did this great miracle. Now, one thing that's very easy to happen when you get reading Scripture, and you get reading about an incredible event, a miracle like this, so bizarre and such a strange occurrence, that you can actually miss the point. How many of you know it's possible to like read about a miracle and be so just mar like marvel so much at the actual event that you miss what it's trying to tell you? Every miracle that you read about that Jesus did in the scripture is ultimately a sign. It's a signpost pointing you to something. And what are you supposed to do with a sign? Read it. What's it saying? Where is it telling me to go? And then follow it. And these miracles are signs pointing us to something more, someone, somewhere else. And we're supposed to look a little bit deeper. And so I have a few, two insights, one invitation. Here's the first insight, and we'll break it down, and we'll help try to make it make more sense. But we'll say it like this. Here's what I think this miracle is trying to get us to see, one of the things. In a world that lives stomach first, Jesus invites us to find ultimate satisfaction from him. It's a matter of satisfaction. In a world that lives stomach first, those immediate appetites, those base urges first, Jesus invites to find ultimate satisfaction in him. He invites us to find ultimate satisfaction in him. In other words, I would say it like this. I think this message is one, first and foremost telling us, don't follow your heart, follow the one who made it. Don't follow your stomach or your appetite, but go to the one who designed it in the first place. Because he is the key to true satisfaction. Now let me break this down for us for just a minute. I think this miracle, among other things, and again, there's all kinds of ways we could have gone, but this miracle reveals at very least what it looks like when you see a mass of people who are satisfied, who have their needs ultimately met in Jesus. How many of you know that all of your hungers and appetites are not equal? You know that to be true? Like, we have more than just your hunger for food. And some of you are like, dude, it's getting real close to noon. You need to stop talking about food. <laughs> but we have more appetite than just food. We have appetite for social. We have social hungers. We have, uh, we have intellectual hungers. We have all kinds of appetites and desires that we need met. And they're not equal. And a lot of the time you might not think about this, but there is a scaling order to the value of certain appetites and we will intuitively at times know which appetite matters more to us than others. For instance, anybody ever watched the show uh, James Corden? It used to have like a late night show. And on the show, he had a bit where he would sit down with celebrities and he would put in front of them the most disgusting food concoctions you could imagine. Like just, just vomitous type stuff. And the object of the game was he would ask the celebrity a question that they did not want to answer, and they would either have to answer the question or eat the junk. And so he'd sit there with Harrison Ford and say, Harrison, who's a better cook, your mom or your wife? And then he would take the slushie that was a, Mc, you know, a McChicken and mint, and he would down it, you know? Because his appetite to not upset the social dynamic in his home was greater than his appetite or to not eat that food. Does that make sense? There are, there are, there's a scaling order of value when it comes to your appetites. Uh, a man much smarter than me, and a lot of you are a lot smarter than me, but a guy named Abraham Maslow, he talked about the hierarchy of needs. Back in 1940, he built this sort of uh, schematic that helps us understand what motivates us and the reason we do what we do. And I, th I think this is really brilliant. I'm sure there's new work that's more sophisticated than this, but this is really helpful, I find. And his basic premise is this, that every human being is operating in this hierarchy of needs. That your base need for food, your base need for sustenance, you can't live without physical food, correct? You're not going to go very long without food and water. You need those things. And if you don't have those things, the urgency of that presses in upon you. That's why it's like it's first. 
However, he's so smart in creating this ascending order. You can have food, you can have a whole pizza, but if you don't have shelter from a tornado, that pizza is not going to do a lot of good, is it? And so he says, you know, we also need, and we have an appetite and desire for safety and security. We need shelter. We need comfort. We need those things. And then it goes from there into love and belonging. You can have a palace on a hillside, an impenetrable fortress, but if you don't have love and connection and community, you're not going to have a whole lot. And so these things sort of stack upon one another all the way up to like your own sense of self-worth and then the reason, purpose, meaning the reason that you're here. And I think it's so brilliant, though, that he, on the one hand, shows that these base urges, like your need for food, is pressing and it's visceral. However, a lot of the time, these things will take a back seat to these things. How many of you ever been in an environment that was, like, so meaningful to you? The last thing you were thinking of was how hungry your stomach was. Nobody, nobody was at the birth of their child thinking, man, I could use a sub. <laughs> Were they? Why? Because there's, there's ascending glory. I don't know why a sub came to mind. Now, I think I'm taking my voice to Subway after this. So I'm like, oh, a meatball sub coming, 20 minutes. But there's an, asc- <laughs> there's an ascending order. Like, Brent, you're contradicting yourself because you're talking about how hungry you are when you, you're actually preaching the word of God. Get it together. Yes. I'm actually not that hungry. There's literally nothing I'd rather be do. I'd rather do. I'm, in fact, I'm going to keep you here for like two hours. Let's do this. No. No, I'm not. But I show you this, not to get too psychoanalytical, but to show you that there is an ascending order of needs and desires in every human being. And I think this text sort of gives us a glimpse of that, because think about it for a minute. You have Jesus who, who steps on a boat, both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all, they all, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this same miracle. And the, he goes onto this boat to kind of get away. It tells us that John the Baptist, his cousin and his forerunner, had been beheaded. And so Jesus is trying to, like, go just take a breath, right? Like, you ever just needed to get away from people and be alone? And then he goes out in the boat, and they all see him, because you can see everywhere in this Galilee area. And they watch his boat, and the multitude doesn't take a hint, oh, he needs some alone time. They're like, let's follow him. And so they follow him all the way around the coastline until his boat comes, and Jesus is like, oh, it's you. No, but it says he actually had compassion on them. I love it that even when Jesus, when you think he would be ultimately depleted, he still had more than enough to go around. He has compassion on them, and he begins to minister to their sick. Uh, Luke and Mark say that he taught as well. So all we know is, in this occurrence, these people, get this, just think about this for a minute, you who are struggling with your attention span. These people saw Jesus embark on, his, on, the, on the fishing vessel, They watched him and followed him, and they probably walked anywhere from six to eight miles. So it's probably like a four-hour hike. And then they get there, and they follow Jesus up the hillside. Jesus begins to minister and teach and heal. And they go through lunch, and then they go through the afternoon siesta and nap time. And then Jesus plows through supper time, and then evening comes, and they're still sitting there listening and receiving from Jesus. As a preacher, I recognize the absolute miracle that it is that these people are transfixed by Jesus. Like they're literally not thinking of anything else. It wasn't anybody in the crowd that says, hey, Jesus, are you going to feed us? Nobody. Who was it that, that, that noticed uh, we should probably do something because these people are going to starve? It was the disciples like, Jesus, it's really late. All of those people were 100% satisfied and content just being there with Jesus. And I think this gives us a picture about ultimate reality, that, that there is a satisfaction that comes from Jesus, who is God, that is greater than anything in this world. And here's the point. You and I have a hunger and an appetite for transcendence, for glory. And that when we come into touch with the glory of God, with something truly transcendent, maybe you've experienced just just like a, a glimpse of it, everything begins to melt away. Time, urgency, supper, the bills, the, the chaos of life. When you have a moment with the glory of God, like it's almost like everything is right in the world in that moment. 
You have no worries, no fears. No, no, your hungers are all simultaneously met, even if your body hasn't had food for five or six hours. I think that's the most, one of the most incredible things that jumps out here is just that these people were so satisfied being in the presence of Jesus. What does this tell you about Jesus? What's the sign pointing to? That there is a hunger inside of you that only he can satisfy. That he is actually the great satisfier of your soul. And that when you get satisfied in the presence of Jesus, everything else begins to fall into its proper order. I love that he was not just healing their minds, but he's healing their bodies. He's touching their hearts. And oh yeah, you know what he thought about too? He dealt with their stomach. Every single need in that event was taken care of in that day. And it's a picture for us to understand. Like nobody was there in the crowd. Just think about, how, think about this. Like some of you have been scrolling Instagram the whole time I've been talking. And nobody in the crowd's thinking about what's going on Instagram, thinking about the game, thinking about their bills, nothing. They're just, like, I suspect these people had real lives too. They had jobs and bills and family and health concerns. They had burdens they were carrying. They had desires they wanted to see fulfilled and met. And here's Jesus. They're in his presence, and they're receiving everything that they need. I love that it says, it says they, they look, look at this, verse 20. So Jesus does the miracle, and they all ate and were what? They were all set, all 15,000 of them. None of them were like, Jesus, the bread was a little dry. It's like, oh, is, is that tilapia? Sorry. I'm gluten intolerant, Jesus. Sorry. None of it. It just says they all ate and were satisfied. That's a miracle. Isn't it? And this is what the sign's pointing us to, is Jesus' supreme ability to satisfy. And can I just say, when you get in the presence of the real Jesus, and, and I understand that we don't always have those visceral moments where like the veil is removed and we see the glory of Jesus, but if you've ever had a moment where you were in the holy presence of God, you're not thinking about anything else. There's just this frequency that your soul touches when you touch, when he touches you, that you just, everything else falls away. This is what it means. Like, turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. It puts everything in its rightful order. It's incredible. When you come into contact with the real thing, all the ways we try to satisfy our need for transcendence get exposed as not good enough. Don't they? Have you ever been like in a, in a worship service maybe where it just felt like the holy presence of God touched down? And all of a sudden it doesn't just reveal that, oh, it's you I've been looking for the whole time, but it also shows, yeah, this glory was never found on Instagram to begin with. This glory was never found in Hollywood to begin with. I remember one time Melanie and I and Pastor Anthony and Crystal, his wife, we went to Los Angeles, yeah, because we went to L.A. Sounds, sounds, is there any way to say L.A. without sounding pretentious? I don't think there is. But we went to L.A., and uh, we were there for a Christian conference, and it was just some of the most glorious worship I'd ever, ever experienced. 5,000 people, just like, it was incredible. It was, a, it was a glimpse of heaven. And we were in these environments, but Mel and I had never been to L.A., and so we decided to take an afternoon and go see the sights. And we went to Hollywood, to Tinseltown, Tinkletown, whatever you want to call it, Glamtown, and we wanted to see it because, we, you know, we grew up watching movies and hearing about the glam and the glitz of Hollywood. And we got there, and it felt more like a giant polished turd. Um, <laughs> yeah, anybody ever been? Somebody like, did he just say, yeah. Anybody ever been to L.A., like to, to Hollywood? It's not nice. Like, you got poor people out here, like, dressed up like Spider-Man trying to bum a dollar. And it's like, it's just not, it's not, it's not nice. And on the backdrop of being in these glorious environments, it felt so cheap and so superficial and so not able to satisfy the deep longing in my soul that only the glory and grandeur of Jesus can. And so we went back to church. It's like, no, get me, get me back in his presence. And I think this is giving us that glimpse. I think that's one of the things that's going on here is it's trying to show us, like, if you, if you follow your, your base appetites for satisfaction, for the real satisfaction of your soul, you're going to come up disappointed. Not just disappointed, it's going to lead you to destruction. 
If you live according to what Paul calls the desires or cravings or urges of your flesh, and you let those appetites drive you, it leads to destruction. And I think what this text is trying to show us is like, get first things first. Seek Jesus to ultimately be your satisfier and everything else starts to come into order. I love that he didn't say, oh, you don't need food, did he? It's like, oh yeah, they do need to eat. I'll feed that, I'll feed that appetite too. But notice they got the glory, the, the presence piece in order. I think this is so important. It gives us, it helps us understand that Jesus is the key to true satisfaction. And if we get that right, life and abundance and fulfillment and satisfaction comes. But if we get it wrong, all sorts of trouble happens. I mean, you've seen that in your own life, haven't you? Chasing some quick fix or quick urge, some quick hit. You know, you had a one-night stand or you did this online or you did that with, a, with substance or you, you cheated somebody out of something. You thought it would do what it was supposed to do and it just left you feeling broken. This is what Paul was talking about. He says, I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. Even with tears, he's, he's pleading with the people of God. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Here's why. Because their God is their stomach. Do we not live in a time that actually says your God is your stomach? I mean, we live in a culture and a society that basically says the most sacred and sanctified thing is that you stay true to yourself. Follow your heart, which is actually, in other words, say, follow your base urges, your appetites. Whatever thing feels right to you in the moment, do it. And then the only thing wrong is to, is to actually deny that urge. But here Paul's saying, actually, that, that leads to destruction. If you start with your stomach, you end in destruction. Can I say that again? And write that down. That, that'll stick. If you start with your stomach, its end is destruction. And this is what Paul is getting at. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is what I think the scripture is trying to tell us, is trying to show us. Jesus is the key to ultimate satisfaction. And we are seeing the results of what it looks like when you start with your stomach. Ruin is the result. It's not unconnected that mental illness suicide, drug addiction, sex trafficking, all these destructive things are at all-time high. It correlates with the fact that we live in a society that says just serve your urges. They're connected. And Jesus is coming here showing us, no, there are urges inside of you that do need to be, they need to be met but if you try to put the world in the, in the space in your soul that only eternity in heaven was meant to met, you're just going to keep getting disappointed, and it's going to lead you to destruction. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors and my dog's namesake, said, said it like this. My dog's name, Lewis. I feel like, I feel like the great Christian thinker would, would be flattered. Um, <laughs> Because if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. The fact that our heart yearns for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. You were made for glory. Made in God's image. From God's image. You are made from, he made you by, like he made you for him. You were made in his image for glory. From glory. So here's the question I'd ask you. Are you looking for a satisfaction? Are you looking for food that can never actually satisfy? Jesus comes and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever receives me will never hunger again. He says, I'm living water. I'm the well that never runs dry. You'll never thirst again. One time the disciples were worried Jesus hadn't eaten. And they go, Jesus, you should eat something. He goes, oh, I have food you know not of. He said in the wilderness when he's being tempted by the devil after 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry, you know what he said? The devil said, you should turn that stone into bread. You can. And Jesus looked back and he said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. If you get first things first. This miracle, if nothing else, gives us a glimpse into ultimate reality and it shows us what it looks like, hear me, to right order your appetites. Your desires aren't bad. And if you hear that said in a church, they're wrong. 
the appetites that are inside us are all valid. How we go about satisfying them is the question. And we have to start by seeking the kingdom. All right, number two. Are you with me? Here's the second insight. I'm going to be done soon. We're going to land the plane pretty quick. In a world of not enough, Jesus invites us to find ultimate provision from him. So not only is this a miracle pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the supreme satisfier, it's also pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the supreme supplier. He is the supreme provider. He literally met all of their needs in that moment. There was nothing they needed. Like the, he met their needs. And so the thing I would say from this, I felt like the Lord put on my heart, is let Jesus turn your not enough into abundance. There really was a supernatural miracle of five loaves of bread and two fish where Jesus took it and multiplied it thousands of times over to meet all the needs. Jesus isn't just speaking to our appetites or hungers with this act. What is he doing? He's also speaking to our deep need to to have enough. Isn't the question of will there be enough the big driver in our lives? Will there be enough? Am I enough? Is it good enough? Enough is a big problem for all of us, isn't it? And Jesus comes to the table here and he says, with me there will always be enough. That's the point of the, of the, the, the message that Jesus is our provider. Let's look at it a little closer. It tells us the disciples come to him and say, Jesus, you need, these people need to go back and get something to eat. They need to help themselves. And Jesus says, no, we'll feed them. And that tells us that he gave thanks, he broke the loaves. And then verse 20, look, it says, they all ate and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Now, why is that significant? Think about this for a second. Everything you read in the Gospels is connected to the Old Testament. So these are all Israel, like Israelites. They're Jews. All of them know their history. You know what their history is? They were led by God out of slavery into the wilderness. You know what happened in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years? Who fed them? God did. It's this thing called manna. It was like supernatural bread that fed the people, the children of God. This is in their heritage and in their history. And so here's Jesus out in a remote place breaking bread and giving them all of these morsels of food. And it reminds them, and this is what, this is what Matthew's trying to get us to see. Here's the true Moses. Here's the true deliverer. Here's the true bread in the wilderness. And Jesus is feeding his people bread. And this is, the, the, the lights are going off on the dashboard of, of the, the, the original audience. They're like, aha, we've seen this before. You're doing it again, God. You are the same God. We just sung it, singed it, sang it. I never know which. So there's the bread in the wilderness, but there's also something even more significant about it. The 12. Why is why is 12. Why 12 baskets? Why was that left over? And why, why is that detail included? What's the big deal with 12? Now, you, if you know your Bible at all, you know there's 12 tribes in Israel, right? People of God were put into 12 tribes. You know there's 12 disciples, right? Can you name them? Nope. Some of those Bartholomews get a little tricky, right? There's, anyway. Why 12? Well, 12 is actually a prophetic number. In Hebrew numerology, the number 12 is the number of government. So when when God was establishing his kingdom through a people, he established it, a government, 12 tribes. When Jesus was beginning to bring the kingdom of God through his work, he raised up 12 apostles. Again, it's a picture, a symbol of government. Now keep that in mind. What is this miracle saying with 12 basketfuls of bread. It's saying that Jesus is the true Moses, the promised Messiah, and that when he rules and reigns, his government is a government that leads to more than enough. It's a super good, super good news. Like Jesus is the king, the savior, the supplier, the provider, the, the Messiah who rules and reigns in such a way where everyone eats and is satisfied and has more than enough. God bless you. Like, 
don't miss the statement. Like, this is the statement where Jesus is saying, I am the king who has enough. I am the king who supplies all that you need abundantly. I think this is a big deal. Like, like this is what Matthew's trying to get us to see. This is the one that, they were, that was promised in the Old Testament that would govern with peace, like of the increase of his government. And peace, there will be what? That's not just a reference to eternity. It's a reference to multiplicity. So it's, a, it's a reference to increase. That whatever Jesus gets to rule over, he gets to multiply in peace. Like all of this becomes his kingdom of increase. I think this is, I'm excited about it. Because you know why? I live in a world of leaders and rulers and politicians and frail people who even their best efforts, even the most noble efforts aren't good enough. And they don't have enough. And a lot of the time, their hearts aren't even in the right place anyway. I need a king who does things for the right reason, does it the right way, whose word is true, who does what he says he's going to do, who never makes a campaign promise he doesn't deliver on. And listen, <laughs> nobody gets left out. And nobody gets canceled or cut off. Everybody eats and, satis and is satisfied when Jesus is king. Oh, come on. Everybody eats and is satisfied when Jesus is king. And that's the statement that this is trying to show us, that when Jesus gets access to anything, be it five loaves and two fish, or your jalopy of a car, or your RSP, or your investments, or whatever it is, he can multiply that into increase and abundance. And he established his, his peace where he has access. Peace and plenty are the byproduct. Let me say it like that again because it's important where I say it. Where he has access, peace and plenty are the result. Some of you need to, you know how like um, any, any math teachers here, stop ruining math <laughs> as a parent has anybody seen the new math? What is this witchcraft? That is not how you do division. My kids, I don't even try. Like, my kids are all smarter than me anyway, so I don't have to. But have you learned how to do the Jesus math? Have you learned how to do it? Here's what I've learned. I'm trying to learn it better. But I am learning that what I need plus what I don't have plus what little bit I do have times Jesus equals an abundance. I have learned, let me say it again, that, that there's my deficit, my needs, and there are many, plus what I have, in some ways, just not enough, times Jesus, the great multiplier, the one whose government is increasing without end, whose government is peace, times Jesus equals an abundance. Let me write it down again, because you guys need to get this new math, the Jesus math. I'm going I'm to just put it down here for you. I'm going I'm to make it in big font, actually. Uh, there's what you have plus what you need. How many of you need more than you have? Ah, the problem of life. Times, now if it's algebra, do you do this? I don't know. Jesus... I haven't done math since 11th grade. So, equals more than enough. Oh, man. I don't know who needs to hear that today. But let me just say it one more time. Ha what you have plus what you need, which this may be like, is this like a negative, right? Uh, but times Jesus, the great multiplier, equals more than enough. Paul said it more poetically. He, he said, and my God will supply every need of yours. According to what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Like Jesus is the great multiplier. So, so you're lacking peace. Like give what little bit you have. And he will multiply it. He, he multi How many of you know he multiplies finances? He really does. He, he is the great multiplier. And this is a message against scarcity. Let me just say this in love. 
it is impossible to believe Jesus is the great provider, the great multiplier, the great king of peace and increase. It is impossible to truly believe that and still operate in anxiety and scarcity and feeling like there's never going to be enough. It's impossible. And so let me say this. Every time you are afraid there won't be enough, you have effectively removed Jesus from the equation. Every time you are afraid there's not enough to go around for you, it's an orphan poverty spirit and you have removed Jesus from the equation. And this miracle, if nothing else, says where Jesus is, all things are possible. And he is able to take a very little bit and bring it to the place of more than enough. And I need to learn how to trust him in that more and more. He said it like this. Jesus himself said in, in Matthew chapter 6 earlier, and we looked at this maybe a year ago. He says, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Do you see that? Do not what? Do not worry. That is a commandment, not a suggestion. He didn't say, hey, try your best, gang. Did he? He says, just don't. Do not worry about your life because you can't really trust him as king and worry at the same time. Worry and anxiety is ultimately idolatry. You fear something greater than you fear the Lord. So anytime I'm worried, and I struggle with it too, I want to stay up, stay up here and like, I'm never worried. I struggle with worry all the time. But in that moment, I have got to learn, when, why does Jesus say do not? Why is it a decision? Because it's a matter of lordship. Who or what is on the throne of my life? If I'm worried about money, the money's on the throne. If I'm worried about my health, health is on the throne. If I'm worried about my kids, my kids are on the throne. There's only one throne of the universe. Who gets to sit on it? He says, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. He's saying there's, there's a hierarchy to your needs. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than them? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, it's temporal, thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not what? Do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the pagans run after these things. It's, this is secularism. That's paganism. It's humanism to put ourselves first. The pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He's, he's interested in meeting your needs. But you have to put first things first. And it's a battle. It is a struggle. One time I was praying, I was praying, um, I was really worried about our church financial picture. And every, it, every year we grow and the footprint gets bigger and I got to trust God for more to supply. And I was, I was praying, God, it would be awesome if we could just get like an extra million and then I wouldn't be as nervous every single week that people are going to give and we'll keep this thing going and growing. And I, I said, like, Lord, would you, seriously though, Lord, would you give us a million so we can just have a little bit of a cushion? And I felt the Lord say, I'm not going to tip your idol. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to feed your need for money to give you comfort that I'm supposed to give you. And I don't know what that looks like in your life. It fleshes itself out in all kinds of ways. But the battle for your peace is who gets to sit on the throne. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace. Okay, so two observations, one invitation. Here's the invitation. Let's look at the miracle one more time to get it. I want you to look at this. And I'm asking you the question, where did the miracle happen? So it tells us, he, ordered, he organized them to sit down in groups. And then it says, taking the five loaves and the two fish 
And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and he passed it all out. And you know the rest of the story. Everyone ate and was satisfied. Let me ask you the question. I'm almost done. Where did the miracle happen? It happened in his hand. The miracle happened in his hand. Like quite literally, he took bread and the master and creator of the universe was able to change the atomic structure of bread and multiply it. But make no mistake, the miracle happened in his hands. So what are we to take? What's the invitation? It is to put our lives where? In his hands. And I don't mean that in some kind of superficial coffee mug trite way. I mean quite literally to learn how to trust him how to be hands-off with the things that were, are most precious and urgent to us, and how to trust him with them, how to actually put our money in his hands, our, our time in his hands, our family, our marriage, our business, our job, our, the things we create, the, our, our leisure, our fun, our friendships, how to invite his hands into the equation. His hands are the hands that multiply, and his hands are the hands that provide, and the key here is that we would learn how to place our lives in his hands. Here's the catch, and I'm almost done. Jesus cannot bless what you refuse to let him touch. He's given you dominion. God has given you dominion. And if you don't give him access to certain areas of your life, you will not obtain his blessing. Jesus cannot bless what you will not let him touch. Jesus can't multiply what you won't surrender to him. Jesus won't heal what you won't offer him or show him or be honest about. Jesus can't help you in areas that you won't surrender to him. Do you, do you get the point? The key to the blessed, abundant life is the touch of Jesus. It's, it's the hand of Jesus in your life. And here's what I felt, just a simple invitation for you today, and I want, I want to challenge you to go with it this week. Here it is. Jesus is willing, even interested, to have his miracle-working power expressed in the ordinary, everyday stuff of life. I felt the Spirit just kind of urge me and challenge me and to share the challenge with you, and that is this. I sometimes, when I think about God, I'll think about inviting him into the big areas of my life, like my purpose and my family, and that's, that's appropriate, but sometimes I forget that actually he wants to touch the small little morsels of my life too, in the everyday stuff. I, I love how ordinary the, the backdrop of this miracle was. Like it's just five pieces of bread and two fish. And Jesus made it extraordinary. What is the everyday stuff of life that Jesus wants access to that you're just not giving him? And I felt challenged that, that Jesus is asking me as a follower to learn how to just invite him into everything. Like what would it look like if you just learned how to invite him into the small everyday stuff? Invite him in to every hour of every day, every day of every week, every week of every month, every month of every year, every moment of your life, just like allowing him to touch it. And what does that mean? Because I know, I know we're using like metaphorical language, but it's not just metaphor, it's literal. Like how do you invite Jesus into your life? Well, I think it boils down to a couple things. Well, here's the invitation. I missed that, but I'm already talking about it. The invitation is, to live a life of consecration before consumption. What do I mean by that? Consecration is to present to God, to set apart. Before you seek to meet your needs, seek to seek him, seek the kingdom. Now, what does it look like to put everything in his hand? I think it starts with worship. I think it starts with thanksgiving and acknowledgement. It's not just like before a meal where you say, God, thank you for this food. What if you thanked God when you bought a car? What if you thanked God for your job that you're tolerating on the way to work? What if you thank God for your boss? 
What if you thank God for the tough conversation you're going to have to have and you acknowledge his godness over your situations? It's just an, it's an act of worship, reverence, thanksgiving. And then ultimately, it's an act of faithfulness, of being obedient. One of the ways we remove the hand of blessing from our lives is when we disobey him. I have seen that obedience often leads to abundance. Has anybody noticed that in their life? I'm not saying you've done it perfect. Say it, we've all been disobedient and it leads to destruction, but I've seen being obedient leads to abundance. So here's the challenge for you this week. Invite Jesus into everything. Acknowledge him in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Seek him first and everything will be added unto you. And do not write off how small and mundane of a morsel of your life Jesus is interested in multiplying. Would you stand to your feet? Let's pray. Instead of uh, opening your hands, palms up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually put my hands, palms down. Uh, just in a sign to God of release, of trusting his lordship and inviting him in. And so, Father, we just in this moment acknowledge you as our great satisfier and our great supplier, as the one whom, who is only, the only one who is able to satisfy the deep longings of our soul and the one who is able to abundantly supply all that we need. And so, Father, we just, with, with all that you've given us and all that we need yet, we just release it to you, God, and we ask for your kingdom and your lordship and your righteousness and your peace to have deeper access and multiplying, increasing abundant power into this moment and this season of our lives. And so, Father, I pray you teach us as a church. And I just pray with my brothers and sisters. Teach us as a church and as a people to be people who know how to put the stuff of life in your hands. The everyday stuff. The big our marriages, our kids, our jobs, our careers, our futures, our health, and the small. Would you help us learn to just surrender to you and experience the blessing and the abundance that only you can produce? We say we invite you to be king. We invite your lordship. We ask for your provision. We pray, God, for your blessing over us. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. amen.